All right, well, assuming everybody has this, um, let me just tell you what we're doing. Uh, here at RUF this semester, we have been tracking through the basic plot line of the Bible. We've been arguing that the Bible itself is a story. And so what we've done each week is look at how the Bible unfolds as a story. And as we've said every week, the Bible has four basic chapters or four basic stages or movements. Uh, creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. And so the whole Old Testament, we've looked at this uh, this past semester, uh, God created the world good, the fall happened, sin entered into the world, pollution and corruption and death and decay entered in. We spent three weeks looking at that. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, it is this one disaster after the other. One big, huge failure and mess up. And, and every now and then you get real moments of promise where God's people may kind of get out of the jam and actually start serving God faithfully, but in the end, they always mess up. And so throughout the debris of the Old Testament, we get these little snapshots. We get kind of these little vignettes and these movie trailers about something that is coming. Something is going to cataclysmically happen to fix this screwed up and really messy situation that humanity and the earth finds itself in. And so that is... Redemption. That is the stage of redemption. And so we're going to enter into that and begin talking about that specifically tonight and for the next few weeks. So we've looked at creation, the fall, and now we're in redemption. Finally, some, some good things to talk about. But anyway, uh, so if you have this thing, follow along with me. We're looking at John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is God's word. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, we know how deadly these familiar passages of Scripture can be. We tune out. We gloss over your word and our arrogance prevents us from 
listening. So I pray, would you explode our previous categories? Would you, Holy Spirit, rearrange the way that we think about you and the way that we think about ourselves? We know that we have no hope of doing so apart from your intervening help and grace. So we ask, would you be so kind as to join us, even right now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, that Jesus is the chapter on which the plot turns. Jesus is the chapter on which the whole plot turns. Meaning, or in other words, the whole Bible is a story that when you get up to the New Testament, once you get up to stories about Jesus, the Bible begins to take a massive plot twist. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the, probably the classic text on Jesus's coming to earth and taking on flesh, what theologians have always called the incarnation. So, three questions that this text raises tonight that I want to look at. One, what is the incarnation? Two, what does it show us? And three, what should our response be? So, first, what is the incarnation? I want you to begin, as we look at this, that John, the guy who's writing this gospel, begins kind of in the theological stratosphere. He takes you back way before... Time began itself. All the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin with Jesus' birth. They kind of bring you down to earth and, you know, the ancient Near East. But John begins way up in sort of the theological stratosphere. Here's what he says in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why does, Jesus be, or why does John begin this way? Well, first, he wants to orient you and anchor you to the very nature of God. Because assumed behind everything that John writes as he's talking about God, he is assuming that God is a trinity. Three persons in one being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Distinctions and yet totally equal, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. And so he says, in the beginning, the word was with God. The word is distinct from God, right? The word is his own person. Is his own person. And I know some of this can be lofty and weird, but hang in there with me. And we're going to talk about in a second what in the world the word means. But he's referring to the sun in this, in this part of, as he, as he begins. He's looking at the sun and he's saying that the sun is distinct from God, from God the Father. And yet, the word was with God and the word was God. The sun is God. The sun is is completely divine, 100% divine, pre-existent, eternal, divine. So I want you to see that in the Trinity there is distinctions and yet equality. And the thing that's important about this is because he is assuming that the Son, Jesus himself, is pre-existent. There was never a time when the Son was not. There was never a time... That he was made or that he was created. This is the assumption behind the Bible. So John begins by just orienting you to the very nature of God himself. But then what does he do? Secondly, he anchors you and orients you to the story of scripture. It's pretty interesting. How does he begin? He begins by writing, in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? It's the first verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth, But he doesn't say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He takes you back before that. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, so what in the world does that mean? The Word. Word. <laughs> word of Jesus. Anyway, uh, the Word. Think about what words do. They reveal what somebody is thinking. 
They articulate and clarify who somebody really is. So when it refers to Jesus as the Word, it is referring to Jesus as God's divine self-expression. This is who God is. He is revealing himself in the person of Jesus. And so what, what, what he is doing is anchoring you in the storyline of the Bible, and then he sort of drops you right into the middle of it. You know how in um, the beginning of Star Wars movies, where you're looking at space, kind of the black space with all the stars, and you have that sort of weird font text going up, and it's informing you about all this background about the intergalactic politics and interplanetary strife, and, and once all the text goes away, then, you know, the camera's still there, and then it kind of zooms down and kind of brings you into, like, a spaceship or something. (laughs) Planetary. I don't know. This is basically what John is doing. He is taking you up into the stratosphere, giving you all the background on the intergalactic theology, and then he starts bringing you down into the middle of the first century A.D. This is why he starts talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist showed up talking about Jesus. He's situating us historically in the storyline of the Bible, and saying, hey, the Word has showed up. God's divine self-expression has showed up in real space and in real time. So he's, he's, he's setting you up to tell you what the Incarnation is. And as it hits you, it starts exploding every category you have in your head. And so he says this in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word the Son, the pre-existent, never been created, eternal, divine, God himself becomes flesh. It's a really interesting word in the Greek. John didn't have to use this word flesh because it's a very in-your-face way of talking. He could have used a much tamer word like body, but instead he uses flesh. It's almost a graphic word to say that God himself came down to live in a smelly village. To step in goat feces as he's walking around. To go through puberty. To get dirty. He is taking on human flesh. It is not that he is just appearing to be human. He is exactly like one of us. He becomes completely man. And here's the distinction that you have to keep in mind. And I know a lot of this is crazy and highbrow and theological. But it's important Because there are some people that say, okay, so so Jesus, when he's in heaven, he sort of takes off his God clothes, puts on his man clothes, and shows up to earth. He, He compromises his divinity by taking on his full humanity. And scripturally, that is not true. He is 100% fully divine. But the flip side is... uh. The same way. Some people say, well, God or came down and so he just sort of appeared to be man. It was sort of like a mirage that he was uh, a, a real human. But he really wasn't. He was, I mean, that would compromise his divinity if he was actually human. But biblically, that's incorrect. Biblically, Jesus is 100% fully divine and 100% fully human. It's mind-boggling how that works, but that's the presentation that we are given in the scriptures. The Word became flesh. This is what the incarnation is. So, that's the first question. Second question, what does this show us? It shows us three things. One, His glory. It shows us God, and it shows us the very essence of the gospel. So, glory, God, gospel. Preacher tricks all start with the same letter. So, it shows us his glory. 
Verse 14 again. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory means weightiness. It means honor. It means significance. And uh, I just want you to see how backwards this is to us. Because the Bible is presenting this as a definition of glory. Jesus leaves heaven, the grandeur and the wonder of being with God, and comes down to a sinful, polluted, violent world. And the Bible says this is his glory. This is glorious for him to do. It's the same concept uh, behind Psalm 138. It reads this way. May the kings of the earth sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. And then it answers why. Why is the glory of the Lord great? Because though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly. We have a totally re defining of this word glory. And it totally turns everything on its head. Eugene Peterson, who's the author of The Message, I know some of you have that translation. I like Eugene Peterson. Here's what he says. He says, This word glory must now be reimagined and received and entered into as Jesus reveals it. Namely, Jesus ignorable, unimpressive, dismissed, marginal, Suffering, rejected, derided, and hung on a cross. Think of it like this. Anybody can parade through with the pomp and with the trumpets and and, and announce, I'm the greatest, I'm the man. And these people typically kind of just get forgotten. But what did Jesus do? He came in as a infant, as a weak and vulnerable infant. And then he lived a life of being a homeless peasant in middle of nowhere Palestine. And the highlight of his whole life was his death. Who else would be known for such a resume? And yet here we are 2,000 years later, still talking about how amazing he is in Boone, North Carolina. I mean, just think about it. Billions of people for 2,000 years have claimed to have been deeply impacted by this man. Who else could have uh, had this sort of impact with this sort of resume? I talked to you, some of you earlier today. Who knows who LL Cool J is? <laughs> do most of y'all know who LL Cool J is? Yeah. Some of you probably do, and some of you don't. Could most of you name two songs that LL Cool J sings? I see some no's. Do you know what LL Cool J stands for, by the way? Yes. Do you? Today. I told you today. Ladies love cool jams. <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> anyway, LL Cool J. For, the, for those of you who don't know, he's a rapper in the 80s and the 90s. And he, he, he uh, uh, self-titled himself The Goat. And what he meant by that was another acronym. He was very into acronyms. G-O-A-T. Greatest of all time. <laughs> for that sort of title, greatest of all time, it doesn't really fit with the goat illustration. But anyway... But, the, but my point is, by breaking it up LL Cool J, is that for most of you, you probably couldn't name two songs that he sings. Some of you could, you LL Cool J fanatics. But for somebody to say, hey, I'm the greatest rapper of all time, in ten years he's forgettable. He's forgotten. But listen to, the, to, to what Jesus does as he talks about his glory. It says, this is my greatness. I have come and sacrificed heaven itself. I have given up everything. I have left the presence of the Father to come down to earth. 
And this is my glory. He takes all of the values that we prize, success, accomplishment, grandeur, and he totally tips it on its head and says, do you know what I really value? It's sacrifice. It's losing it all. It's giving up everything to help out and to rescue other people. This is what glory is. It kind of changes and challenges the way that we think about our own glory. So, the incarnation shows us his glory, but it also shows us God. Look in verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. You know what this is saying? This is saying that Jesus has revealed who God really is. Do you want to, do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Are you getting to know Jesus? <clears throat> then you're getting to know God himself. Two quick applications on this point. Look at what Jesus does. Look at what the incarnation is. It is him losing everything, giving up heaven and glory and presence with the Father to come down and to rescue other people. And so you have to ask yourself, if I claim to believe in Jesus, if I claim to believe in this God, then you have to ask yourself, do I even resemble him at all? Am I allowing other people to cut into my time, to cut into my schedule, to cut into my weekends? Are you willing to give up your time or your resources or your money for other people, for the sake of other people? Because if you aren't, if you aren't willing, it's not just that you aren't following God, it's that you aren't even like Him. This is who God is. He gives up everything to, to benefit somebody else. Some of you probably are feeling disconnected from God, that there's no uh, joy. You're not feeling like you're communing with him like maybe you used to in the past or something. And so if that's the case, if that's where you are, that maybe you're just in a spiritual funk right now or something, I want to ask you this question. What are you giving up for other people? What are you leaving to benefit other people? Because this is who God is. I mean, look at your schedule. When you wake up in the morning, you go through your morning routine, and you go to class, you go to lunch or whatever. Where in your day are you intentionally, voluntarily sacrificing and leaving and giving up something for the benefit of somebody else? Because if you're not, and your whole day is really revolved around you, my decisions, what I'm going to do, I'm not making space or room for anybody else, maybe the reason you're disconnected from God is because he is exactly the opposite. He is saying, I'm willing to give up everything to rescue other people. That may be a reason why you're not connecting. You're on two totally different strategies of life. The second application on this point is this really challenges us to think differently about ministry. Ministry, how we incarnate Jesus into the rest of the world. Because the incarnation totally demolishes any instinct that we have to retreat from that sort of evil, wicked, sinful culture and form our little Christian suburb over here. Our safe little Christian fortress where we have our Christian coffee shop and we listen to our Christian music and we have our little Christian world over here. The incarnation totally strips us of those instincts to retreat from the sinful culture, but to actually plunge into it, to jump into it and to dive into it. The longer that you're around RUF, you will hear me saying, I want you to get deeply involved into the university life, to get deeply plunged into your dorms or to any other clubs that you're in or the intramural team. 
Because the incarnation is we, we want to meet students where, we, where they are. This is why RUF meets on campus, by the way. We want to <laughs> incarnate Jesus into the very center, the very nucleus of App State. So this challenges us to not sort of retreat and form our own little Christian bubble or sort of to get near the culture and lob little gospel bombs and then retreat (laughs) back into it. We are immersing ourselves in the culture to live amongst the students, to live amongst the people on your dorms and in uh, in your houses or whatever, and to plunge in and to get to know and to live life with the people. This is what the incarnation does. It shows us what ministry is like because it shows us who God is. Third, it shows us the very gospel itself. The first verse in the actual Greek manuscript is not, in the beginning was the word, but the first thing written on the page is the title, the gospel according to John. Okay, so what does gospel mean? It's a nice loaded word that we use a lot in Christian circles. The gospel was actually a cultural term used in the first century that wasn't necessarily connected to Christianity. It basically meant the announcement of a historical event that was good. So when a new king would be born, or when a war was won, they would send heralds and messengers into a town to announce the good news. They didn't have text to you know, transmit information quickly, so they would send people running into a certain town and announce the good news. So what Christians did was use that term as a summary for the central message of what Christianity was and say, hey, we are here too, announcing this huge historical event. Something cataclysmic has happened. What is it? God has come down. God has come down to us in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus. I want you to see how unbelievably radical And different this is from every other religion on the planet. Because every other religion is, work your tail off to get up to God. Only Christianity is God condescends out of pure grace to come to us. Every other religion says, okay, if you do this, if you show that you're devoted enough, if you go to church this many times, if you pray this much, if you read this sacred text this much... Do this sort of behavior. At the end of the day, I'll consider letting you in based off of your loyalty to me. And I want you to see that that is not good news. You know how insecure you must feel? How uh, no assurance you must feel? Because you would never know, am I doing enough? Or if you did X, does that completely disqualify me now? Did I just ruin everything? You would be driven by guilt. You'd be driven by fear. You wouldn't have any joy in your life. Of course you wouldn't. Not this deep, lasting joy because you're constantly insecure, worried whether or not I'm going to get up to God. Only Christianity says, God comes to us. And this is the essence of the gospel. He comes down to us. One of the worst things, well, maybe not one of the worst things, one of the most frustrating things about being a campus minister is that y'all lie to me. Here's what I mean by that. When I'm talking with you, a lot of you like to bend the truth a little bit. You like to sort of polish up your stories so it doesn't sound as bad as it really is. So you say things like, well, this past weekend I I drank a little. And what you really mean is I got totally trashed this weekend. (laughs) Or me and my girlfriend, we're not really struggling physically right now. And what you mean, some of you, is that we're doing everything under the sun except actually having sex with each other. 
It's this sort of, I've got to polish up my act around the ministry guy. I've got to just kind of bend the truth or sort of make excuses because I, I can't come as I really am with all of this guilt and with all of this shame. And I want you to realize that this exposes, at some level, the way that you think about God. The way that you think, I've got to clean up my act, I've got to get myself together before I come to him. Have you ever done this where before you're getting ready to pray, you think, okay, I've done something really bad. I really, okay, I've got to beat up myself. I've got to sort of feel really guilty, feel really bad about it and show that I'm worthy enough to pray and get his favor and forgiveness because I'm willing to sort of beat myself up over it. I take my sin that seriously. And what you're doing is showing I've got, to, I've got to do something. I've got to earn God's acceptance somehow. I've got to beat myself up with guilt. I've got to polish up my act. I've got to do something. And the gospel strips you of all of those instincts because it's those very things. It's that shame. It's that weakness. It's that sin that says you couldn't get to God. God had to come to you and he did. Isn't that good news? You no longer have to clean up your act anymore. You no longer have to sort of... Pretend and put on this mask, oh, I'm, a, I'm the spiritual guy, but you can actually come to God and say, hey, I'm actually really bored with being a Christian right now. I feel like it's irrelevant in my life. I don't want it to be, but it is. I'm really broken over this thing that I did. I have shame and secrets I don't like to talk about, but here I am, God. And he graciously accepts you because of the incarnation. It shows you the very nature of the gospel, the essence of the gospel. So last question, what should our response be? What is our response to all this? Jesus moves into our neighborhood. He moves into our world. He moves into our very lives to disrupt them. My friend Brent Corbin, whom you've heard me tell stories about before, he moved to Charlotte a couple of years ago. He's one of my seminary buddies. And he got one of those big, huge move, you know, U-Haul moving trucks, the big, enormous ones. Loads it up, moves into Charlotte. And so he's driving up to his new house and as he's driving up the driveway, I guess the truck was a lot taller than he thought it was. So he hits the power lines, you know, bends it, snaps it, and now the thing is like swaying. And like, this is like, he hasn't even unloaded anything yet. And he's left, you know, he's stuck with a problem when he first moves in. So he unloads the truck. And he's thinking, okay, I've got the truck for at least another day. I should go to the mall and get a mattress because now I have all the space. I can put the mattress in the truck and bring it back to the house as opposed to turning the truck in, trying to cram it into my car or something. So, okay, he utilizes the truck, goes to the mall. But, of course, he's in a new city. He's in Charlotte, so he gets lost. And so he has to turn around in, you know, one of these spots. He realizes, oh, the, the mall's back that way. So he turns around, but, of course, a truck does not have the turning radius of a Corolla. So what he does is he's turning, and he's not making it. So he realizes, okay, I'm going to hit that curb. So he hits the curb, jumps up on the curb, still not making it, and he's going through this person's yard, driving up their lawn, and it's not just a little bit on the grass. It's all the way up to where the flower beds are. So he's like driving huge grooves in this person's with a huge U-Haul truck, smashing through, gets to the mall. The story's not over. Gets to the mall, comes into the parking deck garage area and you know they have those those signs with chains on them that said you can't enter if it's seven feet or whatever hits that (laughs) knocks it off of one of its chains so now it's swinging and cars behind them can't enter in because it's like you are barred from entering his first day to charlotte's like welcome i'm here to charlotte i'm totally making a mess of everything 
And I want you to see that in some ways, Jesus is doing the same thing. He shows up to totally rearrange and make a mess of everything, of, of your life and of my life, but not in a disruptive way, in a redemptive way. So here are the two responses. Uh, response number one, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Response number one is rejection. To reject who he claims to be. Response number two is in verse 12. Yet to all who received him, uh, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Reception. Rejection or reception. And if you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but... Uh, I, I just see him as a great moral teacher. Then you haven't received him for who he claimed to be. You, that is just a, a, a fancy way of rejecting him. That is a form of rejection. Well, some of you may say that, okay, well, Jesus just gave us a nice life to imitate. He you know, sort of gave us an example to imitate. And I want you to see that that is a form of rejection too. That is not who Jesus claimed to be. Or some of you say, well, I believe that Jesus... Uh, um, uh, is who he says he is, but I believe that he, you know, I'm going to rope him off from this area of my life. I'll give him everything except my sexuality. Or I'll give him everything except the way that I think about my money, or the way that I think about how I'm supposed to forgive people that have really hurt me. If you've roped him off from certain areas and say, you don't have limits here, then that is a form of rejection. You either receive him or, or reject him. There's no halfway point. There's no in-between. The incarnation is this. Jesus has come from the outside in to change us from the inside out. And let me close with this. You remember the movie Elf? Of course you do. You smell like beef and cheese. You sit on the throne of lies. Of course, Will Ferrell, classic Elf movie. What's the basic premise of this movie? Here is this Elf who comes from this other world and totally invades and disrupts this one guy's life, his father. And he's a huge inconvenience. He's, he's always messing things up. He, he's, he's, he's you know, sc- screwing up his time with his family. He's you know, interfering with his job. He is coming in and disrupting everything. And so what happens? As the story unfolds, this huge inconvenience becomes the redemptive thing in this man's life. He ends up seeing how much he is loved by his son, that he throws away his workaholism. He recommits to his family. He is given this new surge of joy at the end of the movie. His whole life is redeemed as because of this result of this intrusion, this invasion. I want you to say that if you receive Jesus as he is, as he claims to be, he will change you. He will disrupt your life. Because he'll be saying things to you like, you need to stop making your whole life about you and give it up for other people. And you're going to say, well, that's a huge inconvenience. I didn't plan on doing that today. I didn't plan on giving up part of my day for these people. I didn't plan on giving up some of my time so that I could actually help someone else. But he'll begin doing that. And he'll begin changing you and shaping you. And the gospel is, is, is good enough that as you come to him messy and broken, you no longer have to clean up. He comes in and begins cleaning you up. The incarnation is this. Jesus comes from the outside in to change us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we do not have to clean up our acts to come to you, but we come to you tonight um, filled with shame, filled with uh, boredom, filled with apathy, filled with 
uh, just resentment for the fact that we're sitting here and hearing somebody talk about you and talk about the Bible and never thought we would actually spend a night where it, in a room like this. But we pray that you would be kind to us and actually come in and begin kicking down the doors that we have put up in our heart. Would you disrupt us? Would you, would you begin to make a mess and to rearrange the way that we think, rearrange the way that we behave? We ask that you would do so out of your kindness because we desperately need it. We are uh, set in our own ways, set in our own agendas, and we need to be reconfigured only by your Holy Spirit and only by your grace. Would you be so kind to do that even tonight? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.